The School of Ministry and Leadership is the meeting from Potter's Family Chapel where we gather week after week to peer into the Word of God to understand whether or not it has anything to say to our leadership. And time after time, the Word proves that indeed it does. You see, in the beginning, God created man and woman, and He blessed them both and commanded them to have dominion over every created thing in the earth and to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. This is a call to leadership, for us to steward our God-given gifts and talents to cultivate the field he's called us to for his glory. We all have the seed of leadership in us, and God wants you to be equipped to lead because the world needs you right now. No matter who you are, it's my prayer that as you listen and as you begin to believe, you will see yourself growing as a leader. God bless you, and God bless your leadership. Of course, everything that we do here at the School of Ministry and Leadership is about stewardship. I'm always very keen to remind us that God's first command to Adam was in fact a call to leadership that God spoke to Adam and he commanded him to have dominion over every created thing, to subdue the earth and to replenish it. In other words, God was speaking to man and he was saying, take over whatever field I have given you, whether it's the accountancy field, whether it's the music field, whether it's the catering field, whether it's the political field, and fill it with your ideas, subdue that field, replenish it, fill it with your ideas, in other words, influence it, and then be fruitful and multiply. And so we can say then that the way of leading as a steward is a particular way of leadership. And of course, we know from simple observation that not all leadership is steward leadership, but it is supposed to be. We see that Adam was a steward over Eden that God owned it, God created this garden, but then he put the man in the middle of it to tend it, to cultivate it. God wanted Adam to manage the garden, to keep it, to sustain it, and to cultivate it in order to show forth God's glory. And we know that not much has changed since then, that God still expects man, woman, you and I, to live and lead in such a way so as to take care of his creation. So we know that humankind doesn't own creation, did not create creation, but we're called to be stewards over it. And so the steward leads through a mix of responsibility and humility and deference to the master. And when we look at our political systems, we observe political leaders behaving as though the nation belongs to them, as though the resources belong to them. In other words, they're often poor stewards. But I was excited about this monthly theme of stewardship because the Bible is full of references to stewardship, good stewardship and bad stewardship alike. And so this month, we are going to have tons of material to work with. And Jesus himself in the gospel spoke a lot of times about stewardship. He gave many parables. When you look at Luke's gospel in particular, there are a lot of parables there about stewardship. 
And so we know that stewardship is a topic that God himself takes very seriously and that he wants us to understand his perspective on it very clearly. Now, when we go to the Greek um, and we see the word steward, the Greek word for steward is the word oikonomos. And it means one who manages a house and is accountable to the owner. So already we see those echoes of um, what, we, what we see in Adam being placed in the garden. And as leaders in Christ, you and I have been entrusted with his message. We've been entrusted with the gospel. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul says that he, and by extension you and I, that we should be thought of as an attendant of Christ and therefore stewards of the mysteries of God. And the Greek word that gets that that is you the, 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 the word that we use in our English, mystery, comes from the Greek musterion. And a musterion is something that was not previously revealed. It's uh, something that one has to be initiated into. So a musterion is not something that you can find or that you can deduce. One has to be introduced into or be revealed into a mysterion. So that's where we get this word mystery from. And we understand when we look at the Old Testament and the New Testament, when we understand God's redemptive story for humankind, we know that the coming of Jesus was his main mysterion. It was the thing that was not previously known, not in the Old Testament, but that Jesus shows up on earth in the New Testament as this new thing, this mystery that previously was not known, but now has been revealed to man. So the Apostle Paul says that we are stewards of this mystery, the gospel, the good news that God comes himself to redeem mankind. And the thing about stewardship is that as it relates to accountability, it relates to an inventory being taken. So that's why Jesus explains those multiple parables about the master taking an inventory of his stewards. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul concludes after he makes the statement that as attendants of Christ, we are stewards of his mysteries. Paul's conclusion is then that stewardship requires faithfulness. Paul concludes that stewardship requires faithfulness. So tonight we're going to look at the steward leadership. We're going to look at the steward's faithfulness. That's our topic for this evening, the steward's faithfulness. And whereas that might sound redundant, we think that, okay, well, a steward uh, is a leader. As I said, not all leadership stems from a stewarding perspective. We want to understand then if we are to take this perspective on leadership as a steward, we want to know what exactly does this look like and what kind of faithfulness is required. And so instead of starting in the New Testament this evening, we're going to go back to the Old Testament. We have a wonderful example there of, of a faithful steward, and this will be the lesson uh, for us this evening. So I'm reading from Genesis Chapter 41, verse 38. So Pharaoh asked them, Can we find anyone like this man in whom is the Spirit of God? 
Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in a chariot as his second in command, and people shouted before him, Make way! Thus Pharaoh put Joseph in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Amen. Let us pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you so much for this word. We ask, Lord, that in your presence there will be no hindrance to hearing you this evening, what you have to speak to us about being faithful stewards. Holy Spirit, we invite you into this place. Have your way in the midst of your people. That at the end of the day, Lord, when we have achieved what you want us to achieve, we will come back and give you all the glory. In the mighty name of Jesus, we have prayed. Amen. So... We want to understand how Joseph got to this place of honor. How did Joseph get to this place of stewarding all of Egypt? Egypt that was the most powerful nation on the planet at that time. And the story of Joseph is a very rich story. It's a very multi-dimensional story. So we won't speak about all of the aspects of it. I simply wanted to pull out four elements to see if we can understand what Paul means when he says that a steward must be faithful. So then let us ask, looking at Joseph, what must the steward be faithful to? And I'll make for four points. The first point is that the steward must be faithful to the little things. In Luke chapter 16, verse 10, Jesus says, Whoever can be trusted with a very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? And so in this teaching, Jesus could have called Joseph by name. We see that Joseph's journey to being a steward of all of Egypt was a progressive one. When Joseph first enters Egypt, he enters as a slave. So Joseph had nothing of his own. He had no possessions. He had no family. He had no status. He had no rights. And we remember the story um, very briefly that Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers and once he gets to Egypt, he is purchased by a man named Potiphar. And Potiphar is the captain of Pharaoh's army. And so when we look at Genesis chapter 39, we see how Joseph handles himself while being in Potiphar's house as a slave. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph, 
so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in, the eye, in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. And then we know what happens to young Joseph afterwards. Joseph is 17 years old at this point. The Bible tells us he was good looking. He was well built. He was strong. He had muscles. And Mrs. Potiphar noticed Joseph and she tried to seduce him. And Joseph would repeatedly uh, reject her advances. And one day Joseph finds himself alone in the house with her. And as she makes a move on him, he's, a, he, he's able to escape her grip, but he leaves her cloak in his hands. And then she calls, uh, she falsely accuses him of trying to have attacked her. Potiphar comes home, he's very upset, and for this accusation, he puts Joseph in jail. But what I want us to see here is that Joseph was faithful to that which had been entrusted to him. So Joseph was a houseboy. No matter how small the duties were that he had in the house, whether it was sweeping, whether it was the accounting, whether it was watching after the other workers in the house, whether it was loading the food, whether it was helping the, 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 the farmhands, Joseph was entrusted everything. He handled Potiphar's property with faithfulness. We know, of course, that Joseph was so faithful to that which had been entrusted to him that he, he sought not to break Potiphar's trust by giving in to the seduction of Potiphar's wife. And then it cost him, and Joseph ends up in prison. But the point here is that even as small as he was as a slave, Joseph did not breach that trust that had been placed in him, and he did all of his duties with all diligence. And he also didn't fight out against the false accusations. He was faithful to the call he had in Potiphar's house. And though he ends up in prison, we see that as he proves himself in Potiphar's house, he is gradually given more responsibility. So when we jump down to verse 20, still in the chapter 39 of Genesis, it says, but while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. The Lord showed Joseph kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison. And Joseph was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. So we see here that Joseph is progressing. He's being promoted. At one point, he only had entrusted to him the responsibility of one man's house. Now he has the responsibility of stewarding 
an organization, this prison that was filled with men from different walks of life, from different nations, some who were probably real criminals, others who just had bad luck. But Joseph is moving from caring to a single household to caring for an organization. This is a promotion. This is an increase in stewardship in terms of the difficulty and complexity involved. But what I want us to see here is in as much as there are echoes between Potiphar's um, demeanor towards Joseph and the prison warden's demeanor towards Joseph, both of them trusted Joseph because Joseph was proving himself faithful. What I want us to see is, is that Joseph's faithfulness occurs in suboptimal contexts. Joseph's faithfulness remains intact despite the fact that he is a slave or a houseboy in someone else's house in a strange land, despite the fact that he is in prison. Joseph is proving himself faithful while he's still a slave in an unfair situation before his breakthrough. And this is interesting to us because you see, for many of us, when we are negotiating with God, we'll say, God, if you just give it to me, if you just give it to me, you will see how well I'll do it. You'll see how I'll turn it around. You can trust me with it. And God says, not so. God says, you show me your faithfulness while you're in prison, while you're being accused, while you've been rejected, while you're being envied and hated. And then I will trust you with it. So the question for us this evening is in the place where you find yourself right now, how is your faithfulness? Are you leading as a steward in God regardless or in spite of the circumstances? Wherever you find yourself, in an unfair situation, in a place where you are hated or envied, in a place where you've been falsely accused, in a place where you feel like you are a slave. How is your faithfulness? Because what we know from Joseph's story is, is that it's after prison that comes Egypt, that the opportunity to stand before Pharaoh and show him your gift comes after you've been in Potiphar's house and after you've been in the prison. And that the moment that your leadership has been waiting for comes after your faithfulness to the little things has been tested. So the little things, the little episodes, the little assignments, the little people that you thought were of no consequence. You never get the chance to present yourself before Pharaoh until you've been tested, until your faithfulness has been tested in the little things. And how do we know that these things are linked? Because all of Joseph's bosses, they all say the same thing about him. Potiphar and the prison warden and Pharaoh, they all say, we didn't worry about anything that we gave to Joseph. We didn't think about anything that was under his care because he had proven himself in his faithfulness. And so can God say the same thing about you regarding the assignment he's entrusted to you? Or is God sitting on his throne wondering if you're going to make it. So the first point that we want to learn from Joseph this evening is, is that the steward must be faithful to the little things. Let's look at the second lesson. The steward, 
and this is a tough one, the steward must be faithful to time. The steward must be faithful to time. When we meet Joseph, he's 17. He's a young boy. He doesn't know much about the world. He's a dreamer. He probably doesn't work too hard because he's always prancing around in his long, ornate cloak. But he's 17. He's immature. By the time Joseph reaches the stewardship of Egypt, he's 30. That's what the scripture tells us. So from 17 to 30 is 13 good years. It's a long time. It's a long time to be a slave in a foreign land. It's a long time to be in prison. We know that at least two years, Joseph was forgotten by the cupbearer who he had done a good thing for. So time has passed. And even we read some of the scripture, it tells us that. And then some time later, some time later, after some time had passed. So the story is letting us know that it's been a while from 17 to 30. And I just wonder how many of us, for how many of us, how long has it been since God whispered something to you? How long has it been since God told you who you were in him, but you haven't seen it yet? How long have you been on your assignment, but you haven't yet broken through? And so to that, I ask, how is your faithfulness? How is your zeal? How is your walk with God? Are you able to wait upon him and walk and not faint through these 13 years, however long it's been for you, two years, five years, six years, 20 years? How's your faithfulness? So suffice it to say, for leaders, this is probably one of the most difficult things for us to be faithful to, the, the call to be faithful to time. Why? Because as a leader, inherently, you are charged with making things happen. You are charged with casting vision and managing change. You are charged with expansion and extension and breaking new grounds. And if time is passing and you're not seeing those things come to pass, you're not seeing the fruit of the seeds that you have sown and have labored over, then that can be very difficult as a leader. And we live in a world that tells us that if you are not living your best life now, then you're irrelevant. But we always have to remember that as we worship and as we serve this God who says that a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day before him, what that means to us is that the measure of the quality of time gets its meaning in his eyes and not in the eyes of men. So you shouldn't worry what you look like to men. You might be in prison right now, stewarding. You might be in Potiphar's house right now, stewarding. But don't worry about the time that's elapsing. Just be faithful to the time because your time counts in God's eyes. And so that means that as faithful stewards, we need to learn how to steward his time. So not just being busy, because again, the world calls us into this deception of busyness. And at least where I find myself right now, busyness is probably one of the most common idols. When someone asks you, how are you? 
You don't respond, I'm fine. You respond, I'm busy. Well, but busy. And what you're signaling is that you're important, that you've got things to do, that there are a lot of demands on you. But this becomes an idol. So we're called as leaders not to be busy the way the world makes us think that busyness is important. We're called to be full. And those may sound like they're the same, but they are very, very different. So it's not that we fill our time in the chronological sense. Remember a few weeks ago, we spoke about the different times. We spoke about Kronos and Hora and Kairos time. But rather, as stewards of God's time, we are called to be full. So the fullness of faith in time, the fullness of hope in time, the fullness of joy in time. And having that fullness even in unpreferred settings. So Joseph probably would have preferred to stay in Canaan with his beloved father. Joseph probably would have preferred not to have been a slave in a strange land. He probably would have preferred not to have been falsely accused of rape and end up in prison. Joseph probably would have preferred to not have been forgotten for two years by the cupbearer when he helped him. But it is in the passage of time, as Joseph remains faithful to time, that Joseph is maturing from that young 17-year-old dreamer to becoming the steward of Egypt. So what is the steward, what is the faithful steward to be faithful to? What is the steward to be faithful to? The first point was the steward must be faithful to the little things. The second point is that the steward must be faithful to time. What's the third thing that the steward must be faithful to? The steward must be faithful to the dreams and prophecies. And what's amazing about Joseph's story is that when we turn to the next chapter and it tells us about Jacob's generations. No, no, sorry. When we turn back previous chapter and we actually start on this story and it tells us about the generations of Jacob. So letting us know about Jacob's descendants, what, what's their story. The Bible actually starts describing Joseph first. And this is amazing. Joseph, who at that time, before Benjamin, was the youngest of all of Jacob's sons. By all accounts, we know that when the Bible is recording generations, the offspring, the descendants, it always starts with the firstborn. And so this story should have started with Reuben, with Jacob's firstborn Reuben. But when you read it, it says, this is the account of Jacob's family line. And then it says, Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flock with his brothers. And then it tells us the story. And so we know this story, that Joseph was just 17. He was young. He was brash. He was a dreamer. He had a habit of telling tales on his brothers. So his older brothers weren't too keen on him. They didn't like him too much of it because he... We don't know how often he would go and give a bad report of them, but based on their response, we can imagine that this particular telling wasn't the first time that Joseph would run home to daddy and tell him what the older brothers had been doing. We know that Joseph was his father's favorite. The Bible tells us not only because he was the baby boy, 
and he was born to Jacob in his old age. But, J but Joseph was Rachel's firstborn, and Rachel had always remained the love of Jacob's life. So Jacob loved this particular son and made him this ornate cloak that he used to wear, even in the fields when everyone else was working. And it's in his naivety and in his immaturity that Joseph has this gift, clearly, this gift of receiving dreams, but the gift was not yet polished into the interpretation of dreams. So Joseph has this gift that he doesn't yet understand. He has these two dreams of his brother's sheaves bowing down to his sheaf and the sun and the moon and the 11 stars bowing down to him, representing his family, bowing down to him, giving him obeisance. And because Joseph is young and immature and he doesn't understand the power of these dreams, he shares them. And this brings even more envy and even more hatred against him. And this is when his brothers plot to kill him and then just finally sell him off into slavery. And so just a sidestep here to just a note to the steward leader, which is that don't share every dream that God gives you. Because the dreams sometimes are like a baby bird that have to be protected until the time that the dream is able to feed itself and the dream is able to fly itself out of the nest. But Joseph didn't understand this at this time. So he shares the dreams which bring, around, bring about this ill will and he ends up sold into Egypt. But it takes Joseph's experience in Egypt, his experience in Potiphar's house, his experience in prison, to mature the dream and to mature the gift. But what's amazing is, is that Joseph remained faithful to them. He remained faithful to those initial dreams that he had. And many of us, when we have a dream that has landed us in trouble, that has gotten us into a situation that we didn't think was fair, that has gotten us rejected or gotten us abused or accused, we suppress that gift. We kill the prophecy and we reject the dream. But not Joseph. Joseph, when he finds himself as the steward of the prison and these two officials, the, the cup bearer and the baker, Pharaoh's officials, when they end up in prison and they have their dreams, Instead of suppressing his gift, or instead of thinking to himself, yeah, once, once upon a time I had dreams, and those dreams got me nowhere, so there's no way I'm going to help you with your dreams. There's no way that I'm, I'm even getting anywhere near the whole dreaming situation. But instead, Joseph stewards his gifts, and he helps the cupbearer and the baker by interpreting their, their dreams. And Joseph stewards his gifts by telling them that, well, I can't interpret your dream for you, but let us go to God. God is the one who gives interpretations. And so Joseph is able to give them their interpretations of the dreams that in fact do come to pass. And Joseph's only plea, he says, remember me to Pharaoh. When you meet Pharaoh, tell him that I am a Hebrew stuck in this dungeon, unfairly accused. And we know that the cupbearer forgets Joseph for two more years. In other words, what Joseph is able to do in this situation, he remains faithful to the gift. He remains faithful to the dream and to the prophecies. 
He's doing what God commanded Adam to do in the beginning by situating himself in this field that God has given him to cultivate, which is the interpretation of dreams. And Joseph is able to subdue and replenish that field. He's able to multiply and be fruitful in that field. Not in that precise moment, because we know that his breakthrough, his breakout is still two years away. But Joseph in this moment proves himself faithful to the dreams and the prophecies, even when it cost him so much. And that's the point that I want to make here, that even if the dream costs you, even if the dream has landed you in some kind of trouble, even if the prophecies have gotten you up against life's sharp edge, just know that it's the sharp edge of life that polishes the faithfulness to the dream and prophecies. That faith untested is simply theory, it's hypothesis, it's supposition, it's assumption. And in the same way that Joseph was tested, that Joseph's faithfulness to the dream and prophecies was tested, know that as a leader in Christ, you will be tested too. And so the question is that can you stay true to what God whispered to you, even when you find yourself in a hopeless situation, even when life has been repeatedly unfair, even when you've been forgotten? even when those dreams and prophecies have cost you so much. And then the fourth and final element, what must the steward be faithful to? We saw number one, the, the steward must be faithful to the little things. Number two, the steward must be faithful to time. Number three, the steward must be faithful to the dream and prophecies, the dreams and prophecies. And fourth and finally, the steward must be faithful to God. And I mean, it might just seem obvious, but it's, it's, worth, <laughs> it's worth repeating. It's worth, it's worth teaching on. The statement that makes Joseph so famous, the statement that makes Joseph's story, the story that we always refer back to, the story that we preach and we teach no matter what, the circumstances is what we find at the end of Genesis. So when we turn to Genesis chapter 50, after Joseph has been made steward of Egypt, after he has seen his brothers again and they have come to Egypt and he's been able to save his father's family. And the statement is so important because it really signals for us the transition of God's covenant with Abraham, the covenant that God makes with Abraham first in Genesis 12 and 15, he repeats it. And then now we find ourselves at, in Genesis chapter 50, so many years later. When God first gave Abraham that covenant, when God first enters into that covenant with Abraham, it's simply a promise. When Joseph speaks at the end of the Genesis account, it's now become a performance. In a few verses, when we turn to the book of Exodus, we will find that Israel has now become this nation that God had told Abraham his descendants would be. That in the book of Genesis, it's still this family of 12 brothers and sisters and, and their, their children. It's a family of 75 members of one man, Jacob. But when we open in the book of Exodus, 
the 75 has now become this nation that's now become a threat to Egypt. But it's what Joseph says that helps us to understand this translation from the promise into the performance. And so it's after Jacob has died, after Jacob has blessed all of his sons, the sons are still now remaining in Goshen, but they now fear. They're now afraid. They say, well, our father is dead. If perchance Joseph was just keeping the peace and pretending with us all of these years for our father's sake, we, we don't have a security anymore. So let us go and, and tell him that our father's last will and testament was that he should not harm us. And we know what Joseph says in chapter 50, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. And I have to tell you that when I was preparing this and I read that, I mean, I almost started crying too <laughs> because there's so much there. But then we know what Joseph says in the verse 18, his brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me. But God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Hallelujah. So we know this statement in so many ways. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You intended it for harm, but God intended it for good. And so faithfulness to God is this. It's forgiving your brothers their trespasses. It's being faithful to God's character of mercy and redemption and forgiveness. And that just is, helps us to understand why Joseph gets held up as a type of Jesus, because this is what Joseph is saying. He's, Joseph is being faithful to God by being faithful to this intent that we are to forgive our brothers, of their trespasses, of their sins, of their errors, of the things that they did to harm us. We are to be faithful to God's mercy, to God's desire for redemption, and to God's forgiveness. Faithfulness to God is this. It's being faithful to his original intent. So God's intent from the very beginning of Genesis was that man was to know only good, not to know both good and evil. And so as the brothers are coming to Joseph in this moment, afraid because of the evil, and they're thinking that Joseph is going to hold this grudge and Joseph is going to take revenge because of the evil, Joseph in this moment is able to be faithful to God's original intent, God's intent for us to know only good. God's intent for many to be saved through this mercy, through this redemption. And so the brothers were thinking the way the world does, but Joseph was thinking with the same mindset that is in Christ. 
And so this is what the steward must be faithful to, must be faithful to God's character of mercy and redemption, but also must be faithful to God's original intent for us to only know the good. And so my question is, as a leader in Christ, are you willing to obey the call of forgiveness, no matter what they did to you, no matter how long it took, no matter how hard it was? Are you willing to obey and be faithful to God's character of mercy and redemption and forgiveness? So in closing, we see that Joseph's story is one of progressive stewardship. It's a story of learning how to be faithful to many things, being faithful to the little things, being faithful to time, being faithful to the dreams and prophecies, and above all, being faithful to God himself, being faithful to his character and being faithful to his original intent. And so Paul says to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 that God's servants are the stewards of his mysteries. And so what was Joseph the steward of? Joseph wasn't just the steward of Potiphar's house and the prison and Egypt. Joseph was the steward of something much greater than all of that. Joseph was the steward of his father's generations. Joseph was the translator of the Abrahamic covenant from promise into performance. Joseph was the steward of God's purposes in the earth, in that particular space and time. And so these are the true riches that Jesus speaks of in Luke chapter 16, when he says, are you going to be trusted over the little? Are you going to be trusted over someone else's property? If you can't be trusted with those things, I will never give you anything else. If you cannot be trusted with even worldly wealth, with the money that you have or the opportunities that you have, then how am I going to entrust you with the souls of men? We're speaking about eternity here. We're speaking about salvation here. These are the true riches that Jesus refers to. And I raise this point because as a godly leader, without any exaggeration, the stakes are no different for you, for me. We're called to steward the mysteries that God has written into our lives. We know that one day we're going to stand before Master Jesus, and he's going to take that inventory. He's going to take the inventory of what he gave you, of what he planted in you, of the places that he sent you, and the things that he asked you to do. And the question is, is on that day, how are you going to give your account? What account will you give? Will Jesus say, I could rest easy. All of the things that I put under you, I never had to worry about them because I knew that you were on top of it. I knew that you were in charge. I knew that you were on it. Or is he going to judge you as a poor steward? And so tonight I pray for us. I pray that the spirit of God that was found in Joseph will be found in us. That God himself will help us to become better stewards of his mysteries that he would strengthen us in faithfulness, that he would strengthen us to be faithful to his time, even when it feels 
like it's dragging, to the little things, the situations that seem like they don't matter, but in his eyes they do, to the dreams and the prophecies that he gave us, that it's taken us such a long time to actually believe or actually understand. And ultimately to his character and to his original intent and to the purposes that he has set for us in this generation. And I pray that when we come to stand before his throne and we give an account of what we stewarded, that Jesus would be able to truly declare well done, good and faithful servant. Hallelujah.